Uh, I'm going to say no one's better than me. But <laughs> yeah, let's go. Blow up. Welcome, everybody, to the Tuesday, June 2nd, 2020 episode of Locked on Dolphins, brought to you by rockauto.com. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all of the parts your car will ever need. Visit rockauto.com and tell them Locked on sent you. I am your host, Kyle Krabs, lifelong Miami Dolphins fan, managing editor of USA Today's Dolphins Wire, senior NFL draft analyst at thedraftnetwork.com, and your MC today throughout your episode of the weekly Locked on Dolphins. Power to the pod. Power to you to talk about all of your most compelling discussion points throughout the course of the week, the offseason, or the Miami Dolphins as a franchise. You guys did not disappoint. We have plenty of juicy, thought-provoking questions to get into today. And I thank you all for sending them to Twitter at LockedOnFins or through iTunes reviews, preferably the five-star versions. So let's dig in to everything you guys brought to the table today. We are going to start things off with iTunes reviews. Fins fan number one asked, what position group has the most and least depth and flexibility? It's a good question. I'd say the Dolphins secondary is their most versatile group. I think in that secondary, you have legitimately six guys that can play man-to-man coverage in any assignment given game plan from week to week between Bobby McCain, Eric Rowe, Byron Jones, Xavier Howard, Noah Igbehogany, and Nick Needham. So you've got six guys, and then Brandon Jones as a safety, who I think has some linebacker flexibility. He's not super big. I don't think he's got true, like, sideline-to-sideline, deep-free safety role capabilities, but he's a good tackler. He's physical. He's got a nice nose for the football. He's smart. I would point to the secondary as the most uh, depth and most flexibility. What team is on the, or what unit is on the other end of that spectrum? Hmm. I would say less least flexibility is probably the running back group because you have two very clear-cut players with specific roles. And Jordan Howard's the Dallin Hill runner. He has some honest pass-catching ability, but it's not really where he wins. And Matt Breida, a little bit more of an outside-the-tackles runner and pure pass-catcher. So I think you've got kind of niche players there in the offensive backfield versus the defensive backfield. Uh, you can kind of mix and match all you'd like. Take from... Uh, Tim Chandler Rodriguez asking, Power of the Pod, love the show. Thank you. We love you. Uh, Under the impression Dolphins play three safeties a heavy amount of snaps between Brandon Jones, Bobby McCain, and Eric Rowe. Uh, Is Brandon Jones the one who gets the most snaps in the box around the line of scrimmage? If so, what percentage of his snaps do you think come from the box? I think that's a tough question. I would also point to Eric Rowe here, right? Because Eric Rowe had a lot of success covering tight ends, and because the Dolphins like to play in your face, I think Rowe, by an extension of that, is going to get a lot of reps uh, shaded five yards or or inside the contact window over top of tight ends. 
Brandon Jones, he doesn't have like linebacker size, right? He's like, he's not 215, 220 pounds. He's not a, a heavy safety, uh, but he's a good tackler. So I think he's kind of your traditional strong safety. You know, perhaps you might groom him to play uh, some deeper coverages, but I like him as the the rat in the hole. So you play cover one, right? And that's what the Patriots have had so much success with. If you didn't see, uh, uh, Stephen Ruiz from For the Win did a, a piece on the Patriots cover one defense, and it was excellent. Knowing Brian Flores is from that tree, and by extension, a lot of these principles are going to be applicable to the Dolphins with so many press man cover guys. Um, he talked about you know, cover one and how the Patriots were so potent in pass coverage against cover one or in cover one. I think that from Miami, you know, if you get cover one, Robert, where you're, you've got maybe two high safeties cover one, you've got a single high free safety over top of the, the man, to man defenders underneath. And that second safety, instead of pushing back and taking half the field rotates down in between the hashes, you know, 10 to 15 yards. And he's looking to prowl for anything that's coming across the middle. I think that, in coverage is probably Brandon Jones, uh, where you'll see him the traditional quote unquote strong safety, and then from that that robber role in the defense is a run fit. You can then run the alley and fill off off tackle fits, and then you're just kind of hovering over top as a last line of defense for anything that might pop off in between the tackles. A uh, question for Mister Krabs from uh, I love you, but I don't know how you're saying this. It's Yubba Gubba. Is, is the iTunes name. What has to happen for the Dolphins to win less than six games in 2020? Describe the worst-case scenario, please. Uh, the Dolphins are staunchly committed to redshirting to a tongue of Iloa regardless of his health and availability, and Ryan Fitzpatrick regresses, and the offensive line does not gel with any kind of progress throughout the course of the season. I would say the heart of the Dolphins' schedule is its most forgiving. The third quarter of the season is is a, a stretch. Two games, obviously, back-to-back against the Jets. It's nice. Uh, is is where the Dolphins... Well, this team might start slow. This team might start 3-5. and five. But let's not jump off the wagon because the second half of the season, you know, you've got New England coming down in December. You've got the Jets twice. You've got some other... I don't want to say soft. Is Cincinnati again? There's another team that's that's you should be able to beat. You beat them last year, and your team got better. Um. So I think the the course to a non-improved record for the Dolphins in the win column is either boatload of injuries, which it's hard to imagine them being worse worse than what they were last year. Or offensive line continuity issues and consistency issues with so much youth. And Ryan Fitzpatrick does not play like 2019 Ryan Fitzpatrick. He plays like Fitzmagic and how he got that reputation as kind of being this scattershot hit or miss up and down and and the roller coaster ride of emotions and highs and lows with his play and decision making with the football. That's the path for the Dolphins to have five wins or less in 2009 and 20 in my opinion. 
RockAuto.com is a family business serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to RockAuto.com to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. They have everything from engine control modules to brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, and even new carpet. Whether it's your classic car or your daily driver, get everything you need in a few easy clicks delivered directly to your door. The RockAuto.com catalog is unique and remarkably easy to navigate. Quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and choose the brand, specifications, and prices you prefer. Best of all, prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low and the same for professionals and do-it-yourselfers. Why spend up to twice as much for the same parts? Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Right locked on in their how-did-you-hear-about-us box so they know we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts for your car, that you will ever need at rockauto.com. Transitioning over to Twitter questions. First one today comes from Matt Griffin. Why do you think Tua lost all his big games the last two seasons? Clemson, LSU, including a poor performance against Georgia in in the SEC championship game in 2019. Um, they were trailing in that game, that SEC championship game. But of course, you know, Alabama did win that football game. Thanks to some, some heroics from Jalen hurts, but I see your point here. Uh, I would also point to the LSU game in 2018, which was a big game, a game that Alabama won. I believe they ended up winning like 21 to nothing or 21 to six or something like that. Defensive struggle. I think, um, I think there's plenty of dynamics at play here. First and foremost, Alabama's defense got run ragged uh, against Clemson. Clemson was able to uh, dictate the line of scrimmage, and, and Tua playing through the ankle issues that he played in 2018 is not something that uh, I think we should overlook, where um, his mobility, his footwork within the pocket in 2018 down the stretch, uh, that final month or so when he was really battling through that injury, he was not himself. And showed great physical toughness to play through it. And uh, just like the LSU game in 2019, he started slow. uh, But in some of these games, uh, he inevitably turned the switch on to some degree. You know, LSU 2018, they ended up scoring 21 points winning the football game. And he he evened off uh, and, and stabilized his play. You think about the Oklahoma playoff game. They were dominant in that playoff game in 2018 and won that football game to advance to the championship game to play against Clemson uh, before they lost to Clemson. LSU game this year, he played with the ankle injury and um, had a fumble early on through one really bad pick. It was a great play by Patrick Queen right before the end of the first half. So... uh, I wouldn't say that he's he's played bad. I would say from a team perspective, Alabama hung 42 points on LSU this year. And I'd be interested. I'm actually going to do that right now. My producer, a.k.a. myself, want to see what LSU's defensive performances was throughout the course of their 15-0 perfect season this year. Won the national championship game. Scheduling results. Let's see what we got here. Uh, points allowed by LSU this season. Three, 38 against Texas. In Texas, they won 45-38. 14, 38 against Vanderbilt, but they scored 66 in that game, put the Jays in. Uh, when did LSU give up these points? 
Okay, they gave up 21 second half points after they were winning 38-17 at halftime. They were blowing the doors off them. Okay, so uh, garbage time points to get to 38. Six against Utah State. They gave up 28 to Florida, 13 to Mississippi State, 20 to Auburn, 41 to Alabama, and a 46-41 win. And then the next highest they gave up the rest of the way was 28. So it's not like Alabama didn't play well. They started slow. But you, I mean, I would point to, if you're concerned about Tua playing, it's top-end competition. Watch the national championship game against Georgia. Watch the LSU 2018 game. Watch the Oklahoma game. And then watch the second half of the LSU 2019 game. There's plenty of examples of good performances, even though maybe Alabama didn't come out on top of those games, those contests themselves. Uh, which form, This one's from Raul Escarpio, and this is a really good one. Which former Dolphins player would excel the most in Coach Flo's defense and why? Jason Taylor, Sam Madison, or Zach Thomas? So actually, I'm going to write about this today for uh, DolphinsWire.com as well to get a little more fleshed out. Sam Madison well, burst onto the scene. He had 20 interceptions in three years uh, with the Dolphins early on in his career. He was a dominant ball hawk. Zach Thomas, of course, should be in the Hall of Fame by now. Jason Taylor, first ballot Hall of Famer, one of the NFL's all-time sack leaders, 2006 AP Defensive Player of the Year under Nick Saban. And that's the big one for me. Jason Taylor, of course, he's first battle Hall of Famer. That's a that's a big feather in your cap. Being one of the ten best sack leaders in, in NFL history is a big feather in your cap. No, Jason doesn't fit your archetype for Miami Dolphins model defensive end, right? But you can get him in that Sam linebacker, rush linebacker hybrid role, and have him do so many different things, much like Nick Saban had him do in 2006. And the impact I think would be phenomenal. So I would point to Jason Taylor because I think he plays the highest impact position. I think he's got the versatility that would be attracted to Brian Flores and to kind of help mask for the fact that he doesn't have the prototypical build that you would look for uh, in this Dolphins defense. Which team or teams do you look at and think, I have no clue what they're doing when it comes to roster building? So the anti-Dolphins. Because I look at what the Dolphins are doing and I get it. I don't know how well it's going to work early on. We may have to continue to churn some pieces to get the right pieces in place. But at the very least, there's a clear identity and process with this football team. Who is not like that? I think about the Carolina Panthers. They're a really interesting team. They're, they're a team that's entering into a rebuild not dissimilar to what the Dolphins are doing. But... They sent a letter to season ticket holders explaining that this was going to be a process and they're going to rebuild and so on and so forth. So thanking them for their patience, yada, yada. And then they signed Robbie Anderson to seven-figure deal. And they signed Teddy Bridgewater to a three-year, 60-something million dollar deal. And they trade for Russell Okun. So it's like, are you guys rebuilding or are you not rebuilding? Uh, Marty Herney, who's the GM there, he was the GM before, ceded the, the job to Dave Gettleman and then replaced Dave Gettleman. They brought him back. Uh, he had some interesting comments regarding analytics that make me think he maybe doesn't have a great scope on analytics and what they actually, what analytics actually are instead of making analytical decisions. So 
and, and then obviously with Matt Rule coming in and, and the progressiveness of a, a college coach with Joe Brady, the offensive play caller who was at LSU, and, and the passing game that they put on display. That's a team that just gives me a lot of different mixed signals. And Dave Tepper's a, a new NFL owner. So I think there's some potential for learning via mistakes, not dissimilar to what Stephen Ross did. So I would point to the Carolina Panthers right now, interestingly enough, uh, and it's because of how they handled themselves this offseason, a team that's rebuilding much like the Dolphins did last year. But the way they're carrying themselves tells me they maybe not everybody in this building's all bought in on the on the rebuild. So that's the first team that comes to my mind. Kyle Smith, that's a good question from you. Uh, Dad Marino, excellent name. What is the path for Nick Needham to make significant impact this year within a deep defensive back unit? Uh, somebody gets hurt. No egg mahogany doesn't stick real well early on. I think those are your two best options here. Uh, I, I just think Nick, for all of his improvements, uh, he's you know, he's a football player first and foremost. He's going to have a role on this team. I think he'll be a staple special teams guy and a rock-solid depth guy that you can call into the field and get quality play out of. But I don't think he has the ceiling to mirror and match in man coverage to the same degree that these elite athletes that the Dolphins brought in and I think it's telling that the Dolphins brought in elite athletes despite Nick Needham as a very young player who grew exponentially from the beginning of the season to the end of the season. It didn't stop them from wanting to go out and, and prioritize that position and get like an embarrassment of riches at the position. So I think injury is probably your best bet for Nick just because I do think the investments Miami made speak for themselves. Ocean Jackson. Do you see Fitz Dirt being a long-term option for quarterbacks coach or a coaching role of any kind after next year with Chan Gailey being up there in age? Seems like a nice transition. This is an interesting thought and sentiment, not one that I'd necessarily given much thought to on my own. Um, I know Fitz being around the game as long as he has, I would not be surprised if he ends up coaching. Uh, I don't know if getting into a quarterback coaching role for him right out the chute uh, is something logically that the Dolphins would look to do. And I don't think he's somebody that you would necessarily put onto a, what's the word I'm looking for? You wouldn't put him on a fast track to take over for Chan Gale as the offensive coordinator of the team. Uh, I think you'd need much more experience. And, and Chan being in his upper 60s, you know, he's a little long in the tooth himself. So I think, Miami's transition for offensive coordinator will probably involve someone else somewhere along the line uh, that's not Shane Gailey, but I think we'll have similar conceptual beliefs to how an offense can and should work to Shane Gailey. Sean, three-part special teams question. Can you do an episode examining our special teams unit? Yes, I will do that. Not today, though. Who do you see making an impact? I see Malcolm Perry to take over as kick and punt returner. And last and most importantly, my word's not his, does John, John Denny deserve a spot in the ring of honor? Yes, this man was a fixture in Miami for so long. And the only time you ever said his name was when you talked about how long he's been with the Dolphins. The play of John Denny, rock solid. I am here for all of your John Denny love. 
Anything that we can get going for John Denny, I'm ready for. Uh, who do we see making an impact on special teams? Nick Needham. Malcolm Perry is a good call. Uh, I think he's got a realistic option to make an impact and kind of diminish the wear and tear on Jakeem Grant. You'd obviously love to get Jakeem touches in the special teams game where it's so wide open and so much space at his disposal. But if he's got a quote-unquote pitch count to keep him healthy and diminish his hits, I'd rather Jakeem be taking those, those touches on offense. So Malcolm Perry makes a lot of sense for his quickness. You saw his some big playability from him if you watched the Shrine game or anything that he did at, at Navy. He jumps off the screen at you. Who else? I would probably, if I was going to point to a wide receiver, the best ceiling special teams guy amongst the wide receivers, in my opinion, is Mac Collins. The receiver the Dolphins picked up from the Philadelphia Eagles on waivers. The question for Mac is... Can he bring enough ceiling to in the passing game to warrant a roster spot? Because if he doesn't, you're going to have a hard time justifying keeping Mac Collins just on for gunner duties when you've got so many defensive backs and safeties that can do the same thing. So that's the big challenge for Mac Collins. But those are some of the names that I would point to right off the bat before we do a deep dive into special teams. Shout out to Egregious Philbin for the most creative question I've ever got on this show. And I believe this is my 13th rendition of Power to the Pod. Shout out Dan Marino. Egregious Philbin. Where did you come up with this, man? The roster has been dropped into the South Beach Hunger Games. This is, this is real. I'm not making this up. Based on skills and instinctual smarts, who is the lone survivor? considerations. Katniss, the main character from the Hunger Games, wasn't the strongest, but she could use a bow like nobody's business. Peta, one of the side characters, could paint his skin to look like rocks. <laughs> um, okay, so which Dolphins player has the best chance of winning a Hunger Games tournament between the Dolphins players on the roster? A low-key, sneaky nominee here is Brian Flores. I know he's not on the roster. But I don't know if you guys have seen like Coach Flo in person at all. But Coach Flo is strapped. Uh, he is well-built. And he is obviously very savvy. Head coach. Master strategist. He'd be one uh, that, I, that I'd give good, strong consideration to. Uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick simply for the beard camouflage that he has at his disposal is something that's going to be difficult for me to overlook and putting him onto the short list. If I took somebody on defense, I would have to take at some point an elite athlete. Byron Jones is one of the most elite athletes in, in terms of athletic testing, courtesy of the NFL Combine of any player to ever come through the position. So I'd give you that final three. And I'll let you choose who wins from there. Uh, Dave Camfield, if the Steelers make Juju Smith-Schuster available and he wants to come for play with us and Tua, what's the most you would offer for him? Um, complicated question. Steelers are in a boatload of hurt as far as their cap situation and forecasting that looking forward. They are going to have to make some difficult personnel decisions. Juju Smith-Schuster might be amongst them. If he is... 
Pittsburgh is probably going to look to capitalize on a strong season from him to do so. Because that, you know, this, the better he plays, the more he's going to cost, the less likely it is that Pittsburgh is going to retain him. But the shoe on the other foot is if he doesn't play this well and he didn't play well last year, is Pittsburgh going to want him back at all anyway? So probably the best case scenario for Miami's purposes is if he doesn't have a strong statistical season and he loses some of his leverage, uh, Pittsburgh may look to to part ways. Obviously, they just drafted Chase Claypool early on. They James Washington, who was a top 100 pick. Uh, Deontay Johnson, who was a, a top 100 pick the year before that. So, like, they got plenty of bodies at wide receiver. They're not hurting for bodies there. And if they need to, to not pay a wide receiver, I would probably pay knowing that you're going to have to pay Juju a pretty contract at some point and knowing that he is best off in the slot. Maybe a two. I don't think I'm giving a one for Juju Smith-Schuster. Uh, I know he had an excellent season two years ago. Uh, but this past year was not great without Antonio Brown and, of course, without it, Ben Roethlisberger. But I think Juju, with his athletic profile, does project best into a big slot type of role, which Miami would have plenty of use for. Him, Preston Smith, Devontae Parker, Mike Isaki, let's go. You know, you got all the size you could want. Juju's really good run-after-catch guy. I'm good with that group. I'm ready to go to war with that group. But I would not be giving up like a first-round pick for Juju Smith-Schuster at this point. Last question for the day. This one comes from Taylor Zemlicka. Considering the draft is where you thrive, are you more excited to cheer for Dolphins wins or Texan losses this year? <laughs> uh, le- uh, listen, I might be a draft guy, but the reason why I'm a draft guy is because the Dolphins have been you know, out of contention for many of the past 15 years by November. So that's kind of, people ask me, how did I, I get interested in scouting the NFL draft as a potential profession? And I was, you know, first interested in uh, using my work in media as a resume builder to, you know, get the attention of teams and, and network with teams and kind of work my way into a scouting position for an actual team. But uh, the reason I was interested in that is because being a diehard Dolphins fan growing up and, and being now 31 years old, I just turned 31 last month. Um, the Dolphins' struggles through the mid-2000s, 2010s for probably five years, five to ten years. From 2005 through 2013 when I started, so eight years. Uh, This team routinely being stuck in neutral and never feeling like they were able to break the cycle of that same routine every single year where you might start hot or you might fall flat on your face and then you'll build a little momentum or then you'll drop off and inevitably you're finishing 6-10, and 7-9, 8-8 eight eight every single year. I wanted to start looking into how the Dolphins could fix that issue. So I started doing the scouting as a recreation on my own and then it turned into, well, I you know, would actually really like to do this. And I knew a couple people who got started in the industry and ended up getting jobs with teams. And they said, look, like, you've got the competency to talk about it. So just start doing it. Like, build yourself a portfolio. 
So yes, I may thrive in the draft realm, but the reason why I thrive in the draft realm is because the Dolphins pushed me into the draft realm with their endless cycle of mediocrity after Dan Marino. So I would say I am much more excited to root for Dolphins wins this year, but a Texans win is going to be very bitter, and a Texans loss is going to be super sweet, even if I'm rooting harder for Dolphins wins. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of Locked On Dolphins. Power to the pod. You guys brought the questions. We talked about what you wanted to talk about. There will be more conversation pieces coming via USA Today's Dolphins Wire. I'm writing a few topics related to questions that you guys had submitted as well. And we also have three more days left this week. So hit subscribe on the pod. Keep it locked in right here on Locked On Dolphins. Bring yourself back tomorrow for some more Miami Dolphins talk. Thanks, as always, for listening. Hope you guys enjoy your Tuesday.